What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today, we have a Q&A episode. So thank you to everybody who asked a question. Truth be told, I just really want to get a podcast out this week. I told myself I would get a podcast out every single week. And we are moving this week. And it is crazy. And I have all my podcast equipment packed up. Um, I had a couple of other podcasts scheduled. And I just moved them because I needed the bandwidth to do those really well. Um, so we're going to do a Q&A episode a little bit quicker. It's kind of fun. Um, so thank you to everybody who asked a question. I appreciate it. And let's jump into it. First question is, when is the mentorship starting? So for those of you guys that are unfamiliar, Butter Your Macros and I, Natalie, Heidi, and me, we're starting a mentorship for coaches. Um, and it's, I, you know, I feel like we've been talking about it for a long time. So I can imagine that people have been hearing about it for a while. And it's like, why is it taking so long? I don't think it's taking so long. Um, but I do think that there were many different ways we could have gone about doing it. And so um, we wanted to just take our time and do it right. And so we are, are we have our next meeting on August 7th with our website developer um, to just kind of finalize that. And then we can begin marketing and then we can get things rolling. Uh, and so not much longer. We did release a podcast a couple of weeks back. If you want to go listen to that, it talks a little bit more about our process. I think that would be something enjoyable if you are interested. Next question. How's the running going? How is the running going? Ironically, I still don't do a lot of running. Uh, I train, um, I'm doing four cardio sessions a week. I guess, I guess uh, six cardio sessions a week, technically. Um, regardless, um, I know that sounds like a lot. It's not. Uh, I'm doing what? Is it a zone two, a threshold, a sprint? I'm doing five, whatever. Anyway. Most of the work that I do is actually on the airdyne. Um, <clears throat> I am incredibly pr prone to shin splints and I've never run consistently in my life. And so for me, working with my coach, Alex Viata, we've talked about the fact that the biggest risk for me is gonna get is getting some overuse injuries. And that's just not like, uh, we're not taking that conservative approach for no reason. I get shin splints in my entire life all the time. Every sport I've ever played in preseason, shin splints. Um, when I started playing soccer here, shin splints. Um, even when I started just kind of this foray into doing some more cardio, I just started like incline walking several times per week. I got shin splints. And so everyone has their own, oh, you just got to do this. You got to do that. Listen, the, the most important thing for shin splints is load management. It's not doing too much too fast. And so we will incrementally increase the running I'm doing. But in the meantime, we're going to use the Airdyne as a really great tool for building up aerobic fitness. Um, and then looking at running as more of a specific skill development, um, I want to become more fit and I'm going to use the Airdyne for that. I want to be a better runner, so I'm going to use running for that right now. <clears throat> and right now, all that looks like is two times a week, I'm doing what I would call running practice, where I do some very, not very short, but minute long intervals at running pace, not high RPE, not very difficult. Um, essentially, like if you wanted to get better at doing an RDL, um, maybe three times a week, you go down and you load up 50% of the weight you can use and you do, I don't know, 10 sets of three, you know, and just doing the repetitions, going through the motions helps you build um, those motor patterns so you become more efficient at that movement. And that's what I'm really thinking about when I'm thinking about running for now. But we were just talking on our last call that we are going to increase uh, the amount of running that I'm doing at some point. Just, I mean, we have to at some point, we have to run a little bit more. Um, and so that's something that we'll begin doing uh, probably once I get to North Carolina next week. 
Next question. Will you ever start a hybrid training group? Wow, a lot of questions on the cardio. Um, will I ever start a hybrid training group? So hybrid training referring to doing cardio or pursuing cardiovascular adaptations and resistance training adaptations. So doing hypertrophy training and cardio at the same time. Um, I'll, I'll level with you guys. I spent the last, the better part of the last decade learning everything I can about hypertrophy training. Um, you know, along the way, I've picked up things on powerlifting and picked up things on Olympic lifting and picked up things on not really cardio and not so much athletic training, I guess, if we're being fair. Um, but my bread and butter is, hey, I want my joints to feel good. I want to build muscle. I want to get stronger, right? That's my bread and butter. Uh, hypertrophy training, muscle building. Um, it's funny. I think of hypertrophy training and joint-friendly training, like not not 100% synonymous, synonymously, but there's a ton of overlap. Um, and so, yeah, that's been my bread and butter. Recently, in the last like six months or so, I've been working with Alex Viata in more of like a mentorship situation where I really want to learn more about endurance exercise and ultimately about hybrid training. Um, I'm not interested personally in just doing endurance training as a pursuit and, and doing only a tiny bit of lifting to potentiate that endurance exercise. I'm interested in doing both. I'm interested in myself in doing both. I'd be interested in teaching both. I'd be interested in helping others do both. Um, however, I've had this question several times now, and I, I think I'm, um, I'm. Wow, I cringe giving myself a compliment. That I really just full stop there. I was gonna say I think I'm a, a decently sharp guy. You know, like like I'm I'm picking this up. I'm really enjoying it. However, there are just better places to go for this right now. I'm not ready to teach this yet. Um, and so I really hope in the next several years that this is something I do. I have a hybrid training group. I coach more people on hybrid training. Um, if you if you want to run a marathon, I have a client, Sarah Clark, amazing, also has her own podcast, great coach, uh, running a marathon and, and, and says, I want to run a marathon. I want to keep all my muscle. I want to run a marathon. I want to stay strong. I want to get better at both. That's what we're working on right now. And it's fascinating and super fun. And I hope that that's something that I do more of. Anyway, long story short, um, I would go somewhere else for this. I'm just not ready for that. I feel there's definitely some uh, yeah, imposter syndrome. That, that's not even, I don't even deserve imposter syndrome yet. Um, I would just go to people who have been doing this for their life. I would go to people like my coach, Alex Viata. I would go to people like Alyssa Olenek. I would go to people like Alec Blennis, somebody I've just followed on Instagram recently, the last couple of months. Love him, really smart dude. All three of those people, amazing. And there are plenty more. Um, but I would go to somebody who this is their bread and butter. It, it, ironically, doing it in a group setting, I feel like requires more knowledge. Um, like doing one-on-one -on -one for hybrid training. If somebody wants to come to me and say, hey, I want to run a half marathon, marathon, 5K, whatever. And I also want to lift. I feel more um, equipped with the skills to, to help that individual person than I do making broad, sweeping, best judgments on a group basis. That actually takes, in my opinion, more understanding of everything than because you get less information from people when you're working with a group. And so when I'm doing my group program, my group program, hypertrophy training, um, I feel like that actually is more difficult to do in some ways because I have less information from people and I'm making educated best guesses for a lot of people at the same time. And so, yeah, anyway, long story short, I would go to somebody else, uh, Alec, Alex, uh, or Alyssa, all three A's, really great, easy to remember. Uh, really, really amazing hyper training coaches, concurrent training, whatever you want to call it. I, I'm 
don't really jump into the semantic discussion there too much. Cool. Next question, is body fat, body fat set point real? Absolutely yes, to some degree. So I have a whole podcast on body fat set point. I'll put in the description. I think it's a, a great podcast that people should absolutely listen to. Um, at the end of the day, there are genetic and environmental factors that predispose us to being a certain body weight, um, certain level of body fat, both of those. Uh, we have genetic factors that predispose us to eating more, to moving less, and and having higher or lower BMRs, having slightly faster, slightly slower metabolisms. Those are kind of similar things, but there's a lot of subcategories underneath the word metabolism. And so genetically, we're very different. Genetically, there are people who you know will be able to maintain a leaner physique more comfortably, and genetically, there are people that won't be able to. There's also environmental factors, though. Um, you know things that are in your control, like some of the decisions you make on a daily basis, but also things that you didn't necessarily necessarily decide, like where you grew up and the environment you grew up in and the household you grew up in and the people that you were around and your, what your parents' beliefs were. And um, when you combine the genetics and environment, it, there seems to be a range for most people where they can be most comfortable. Um, I think it's the dual intervention model that you'll hear me talk about on Setpoint pod podcasts, where essentially we have a situation where we have these kind of um, genetic. Yeah, again, it's. I want you guys to think of Setpoint as not. It's not firm, hard lines. Oh, I can't go over this many pounds, or I can't go under this many pounds. It's not like that. It's more of a heuristic, a way of understanding this um, idea of hey, when I get below a certain like body fat level, I start to not feel very good. I start to I see exponential increase in hunger, exponential increase in fatigue. And those signals are my body basically not enjoying being this body fat and wanting to increase body fatness. Um, and, and there's also uh, kind of more of a set point on the upper end as well. But within that range, within the range that your genetics kind of predispose you to, we have a lot of control. And so that's where we said it's dual intervention because there's a high and a low, but there's an environmental and a genetic factor. Long story short, we have genetic factors that predispose us to higher or lower body fats that probably give us a wide range of comfort level um, in terms of body fatness or body weight. Within that, though, we have a lot of control. Not everybody has the same amount of control and the same responsibilities in life. I'm not trying to make it uh, the same 24 hours in a day. I'm just saying that there's likely going to be people in your life that can maintain a level of uh, physique that is, you know, if every everybody on planet Earth is 10% body fat, let's use men or women. Let's say every woman on planet Earth is 15% body fat. They will feel all incredibly different. Some people will feel incredibly fine. Some people will be super, super hungry. Some people super, super tired and everywhere in between. And so it's important to understand those. I think this Body Fat Set Point podcast is one of the most underrated podcasts I've done. I definitely think it's incredibly important for people along their own individual journey. Next question. Did you sell your espresso machine? I have not been posting a lot of my coffee content. Um, I did sell my espresso machine. That's so funny. I do not know how you knew that. That is ridiculous. Um, I did because I. it turns out I'm more of a nerd with it than I thought. Uh, the machine I bought essentially did a lot of the work for me, which is why I bought it. Because I was like, I don't want to do all this like all of the puck prep. If you're an espresso nerd, and you know, do all the puck prep and the get, a, get yourself a grinder and... Um, I thought I didn't want to do any of that stuff. 
This is not my MO to want to do that. I'm more efficient, more streamlined. I don't want to spend a lot of time with that. It turns out I was wrong. I'm a complete nerd and I really want to do that stuff. So I did sell it. And I'm in the market for a new one, but I'm probably going to go with a second, something secondhand. Um, I can get something a little bit nicer, even if it's a little bit used. I'm cool with that. How is Gunner doing with his training? He's doing so good. Um, he's doing so well. Um, yeah, it's a twofold thing. I'm sure if anybody listening has children, let's say you have more than one kid, when you have your second child, you know a lot of things. Now, your second child is also a different person genetically. Um, like they just genetically have different predispositions and, and mannerisms and, and, and personalities and all that. But you are also a different parent. Um, and so you have gone through a lot of those things and you have whatever you've changed since how you parented your first kid. That's a fact. You're in a lot of ways, probably more equipped. <clears throat> you have more information about how you want to do it. And so, yeah, I think I find, I don't, I don't know how that always plays out with children. I don't have children, but dealing with the situation with having two dogs, the second time around training Gunner, Jenna and I are much better handlers. We're much better at the training part of it. Um, we're working with my friend, very good dog training, but we are much better at the training. And so when I say that I've experienced him being much smarter, I don't actually know if he's much smarter or we're just better, better handlers. Um, he is a mix of two really smart breeds, a poodle and a golden. And so I'm, I, I feel like there's something there just like genetically, maybe he's picks that maybe he's picking things up faster, but I know for sure that it's a, it's a ton of like us being better with our timing in terms of like when to when to give the reward or when to give a correction or whatever it is. Um, and so he's doing great. And him and Callier have turned a corner and totally best friends. And it warms my heart a ton. And it's been a lot of fun. Um, I will make sure to post more Gunner training content. Cool. Um, how should I tell my partner that he's out of shape, but in a caring and supportive way? Yeah, these are really tough. Um, the typical answer that you'll hear, and I say that and I'll just kind of give my iteration on it because it's mostly true, is that you, you can't change people and and being too pushy does not help. Um, I always default to very open and honest conversation. And and I and I and I would add the phrase, come at it with curiosity. That is a Shout out to my therapist who has, we've talked about that a million times. When asking questions, come at them, come at that situation with curiosity. And so if you can come to this, this conversation with your, with your significant other with curiosity and explore why they do or don't want to do these things, why they feel X or Y is important to them and have a sit like instead of like in the kitchen throwing jabs of like hey maybe you should have some chicken instead of that pizza or whatever like having a sit down conversation about like hey like let's talk about this like let, i want to understand where you're coming from i want to understand why this this isn't such a big deal where's your head at with all this like come at it with curiosity come at it with compassion if this is a serious person in your life then you should be able to have a serious honest chat with them um but at the end of the day, you cannot change people. And in all likelihood, a really high extreme attempt to change people has a recoil effect. And so, again, I I think there's more you can do than just be a good example. A lot of people are like, just set a good example. They'll come around. I think you can do that, but you can do a bit better. I think you could do more. I think you can have an honest conversation with people if you come at it with curiosity, if you come at it with compassion, if you're not attacking somebody, if you just 
aim to understand more, I think that that's a really great way to come about it. I, I'm a big fan. Jenna and I have worked on this in our relationship a ton of like explicit, honest, compassionate discussions of like, tell me how you feel. Tell me how you really feel. Tell me why you feel that way. No judgment, just seeking to understand one another. And, and when you come at it with that approach, you have a better chance of actually uh, getting somewhere, I think. Cool. Next question. I know imbalances are normal when it comes to strength, but is there a way to balance if it's aesthetically aesthetically noted aesthetically? Yeah, I said that right. That was weird. It came. You ever say a word and you're like, nah, that doesn't sound right. Um, I wanted to put another S there. If it's aesthetically noticeable, uh, example, right quad noticeably larger than left. So I'll tell you right now, my entire maybe I can actually do this in the yeah. My left arm, this arm. You guys are missing out on I'm, 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 if you're not on YouTube. My left arm is noticeably bigger than my right arm. If you look, if you look, my left pec bigger than my left, my right pec. My left lat bigger than my right lat. And I say noticeable. It's noticeable if I tell you and if I flex. I'll say a couple things. The answer is yes, you can do something. But number one, chances are no what you say noticeable. It's only noticeable to you when you're looking for it. It's not noticeable to anyone else on earth ever in any other circumstance, literally ever. So I'd start with that. You say noticeable, it's noticeable because you're the one being hypercritical. Um, that said, you know, uh, I my, there's gonna be an overarching theme to the answer of this question, which is like, chill out, it's not a big deal. It probably doesn't fucking matter at all. But that doesn't mean you can't do anything about it. There's nothing wrong with wanting to do anything about it. As long as you're in the context of like, hey, like I'm not so worried about this. Um, and so what you could do is you, could train a little bit harder on that side. You could train with a little bit more sets on that side. Um, those would be the two big ones. Uh, I was going to, you just need to grow more muscle on that side, but sometimes it's also fat distribution. So sometimes it's not even like, like sometimes you have like one like butt cheek that's bigger than the other. And sometimes you're like, yeah, that's because I store more body fat maybe on that side. And so it's not only muscle that, oh, this side is less muscular. Sometimes from a fat distribution standpoint, and that's giving that side a larger diameter or whatever, um, circumference. And, and that's not necessarily something you can do anything about. So what you could do is you could train being very practical. Um, there was a time in my life when I did want to change this. I wanted to grow my right side a little bit more. And so what I would do is on all my unilateral work, I would do an extra set on the right side. And I did that for a while. And it made no fucking difference whatsoever at all. I actually have a friend of mine, Brian Borstein. He's been on the podcast a million times. He trained one arm and not the other, biceps and triceps, for six months. And the other side, nothing. And it made basically no difference whatsoever. Now, that has some confounding variables that might not apply to your situation. Um, but a very practical thing I might do is take all your unilateral work and do an extra set on the side that you want to grow a little bit more and see how that goes. Does that side recover well enough that you can keep doing this? Um, that would be what I would try. I wouldn't add an extra exercise. I wouldn't add, um, I wouldn't go for closer to failure. Those feel less practical in terms of applying them within your training. But if you're like, hey, I have split squats. I do two sets on my left, three sets on my right. I go right, left, right, left, right. And then I'm done. That seems very practical to me um, and can just be a way to kind of edge the volume in that direction. Have you ever heard of mud water? Legit or BS? Just heard about it and know nothing. Well, I'm on my laptop, so I'm going to 
Mud water. I'm going to look this up as we're chatting here. Mud water, a coffee alternative. Mud water is a coffee alternative consisting of 100% organic cacao, Ayurvedic herbs, and functional mushrooms. Holy crap, what a word salad of hot garbage. Um, with just a fraction of the caffeine found in coffee, you get energy, focus, and immune support without the jitters crash or poor sleep. Um, it's probably a bunch of mushrooms, adaptogens and stuff like that, which I'm not, I'm not, I'm not throwing all that stuff in the trash. I'm not, let's pick their, um, let's find their morning rise. Let's take a look at what's in this here. Um, so when we look at the ingredients, we see, can I get a full ingredient list here? It, it lists all the ingredients, cacao, lion's mane, cordyceps, chaga, reishi, um, which are all adaptogen, adaptogens, um, um, mushrooms, essentially. Which, you know, there's some okay research on some of this stuff. Lion's mane, reishi, cordyceps. Cordyceps is striking a little nerve with everybody from that TV show. Um, fucking, what was that TV show? It wasn't that good. Everyone loved it. I gotta tell you, it really wasn't that good. The Last of Us, it really was not good. Um, I'm gonna get some hate. It just was not good. Um Okay, let me let me take one last look. So here's my issue with it, guys. My issue with something like this mud water thing is that it 100% will not give you the energy boost of caffeine. It just won't. Um, I don't think these mushrooms are useless, but a couple of things. I don't love this company because it is a proprietary blend. And so when you look at this, it just says ingredients and then lists a bunch of ingredients. I don't know how much of each thing and, and maybe oh 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 hold on hold on i am wrong okay let me take that back i'm actually impressed it tells you exactly how much of each mushroom is in the serving that's great let me be clear there's actually another question on here about greens powders um and what i would like to say just on this i don't know how much time if i'm going to get through all the questions is do not use supplements that use proprietary blends just categorically, no more. No more proprietary blends. If you see a proprietary blend, you don't buy it. Not on a supplement, not on a, not on a, um, not on anything, not on a multivitamin, not on a protein powder, no proprietary blends. What that is, is just them not having to tell you how much of each ingredient is in there. If they were, if they made a really good product with a, with enough of the ingredients in there, they would tell you. And so this is telling you, um, I would not, this is a very much a uh, fringe supplement, let's just say. This is not in a tier one. This is not in a tier two, probably. I don't think this is so bad. 30 servings for 40 bucks. Um, it's not terrible if you subscribe. 30 servings for 50 bucks, is, it's $1.67. It's a bit expensive. Um, I would. This is not replacing your coffee, period, full stop. Um, if you are a believer in some of these adaptogens, I think this is actually not bad, but I would have to check these dosages. So for me, I would say, okay, there's 1.9 grams of cacao. There's 0.56 grams of lion's mane. I would want to look up what sort of research is on lion's mane and what sort of dosing was used. Um, so I can't really comment on the, on the dosages here. I'm happy that I'm seeing them here. 0.56 grams of reishi, 0.56 grams of chaga, but I want to look at whatever research we have on these is very weak, first of all. Um, but I, if it's like, hey, they're using 10 grams of reishi and they saw a positive effect on sleep and relaxation and these people are using 0.56 grams, then obviously that's an issue. Cool. Never heard of this product. What are you looking forward to most about your new city? Ooh. Um, 
I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not looking forward to anything about my new city, but I'm mostly looking forward to the area that we're going to and the, the change in lifestyle a little bit. Uh, we're in an apartment complex here and I'm kind of at my wits end with being in an apartment complex. Too many other people around, frankly, too many people's dogs shitting all, all over the complex and not being reprimanded. Too many people down at the pool, which is like right in front of my balcony here, like getting wasted on the weekends and being super, super mega loud. Um, and it's a nice community, but it's kind of just slowly gotten worse, I'd say. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to being in a house. We live on the fourth floor. We have an elevator, but we live right next to the stairs. So I take the stairs up and down, up and down, which is fine. I actually, I like that from an exercise perspective, but with Gunner, we take him out like many times per day as part of like a potty training protocol. And it's just fucking annoying going up and down the stairs. I'd like to have a backyard. I can't fucking wait to have a backyard. I can't wait to just walk out my door and go on a really nice walk. When we want to go for a walk here, we have to walk out of the complex and then go for a walk. And again, these sound like little things, but this is a big part of my day-to-day -day life. And I really look forward to that for sure. Um, I'm looking forward to exploring Raleigh and Durham and Chapel Hill and that whole area and going to the beach. And we love going out to like the Asheville Boone area, doing some hiking that's like a three hour drive, but I see our, I see us doing a lot of weekend trips there. So very excited. Smoky mountains, Blue Ridge mountains. Um, I'm excited for some not 150 degree weather. Um, all in all, I'm excited for the lifestyle change. Um, more than anything else, uh, you know, Austin is a great city. And so, uh, you know, moving to Raleigh, I actually think Austin's probably like head to head from just a being in the city perspective. I, Austin's probably, I, it's not fair. I've never lived in Raleigh, but my, my bet is that it's not like I'm going to Raleigh because Austin's not great. Austin's awesome. Um, so yeah, mostly excited for a, for a big lifestyle change being, you know, a very short flight or a, a seven hour drive from my family, which I don't, I don't mind long drives that, that to me, it does not fear me. It does not scare me. Like being able to go up and see my family if I want to is, is nice and, and vice versa. And so we're very excited for more of that lifestyle change. Cool. What is the minimum number of steps or minutes of activity on a day when you just can't do a regular workout? I'm not sure I would look at it this way. I, I don't think I would think of it this way at all. Um, what's the minimum number of steps or minutes of activity on a day when you just can't do a regular workout? Just don't worry about it so much. This is like, you're really, you're really in the weeds here. And uh, I just wouldn't think about it so much. You can't do a workout. Do, do, do some combination of do what you can and don't fucking worry about it. It's just one workout. Just go for a walk or something like, or, or if you can't do your workout because you're busy doing something else, it's not a big deal. Like it, this screams the need to zoom out, just zoom out. It's just one workout. It really doesn't matter a whole lot. Um, I'm supposed to do legs today, but I just got invited to play in a soccer game and I'm moving in a couple of days and I want to play with my friends and I can play. So I'm going to go. And guess what? I'm going to skip my leg workout. I'm literally just skipping it. I'm not doing it tomorrow. I'm not doing it later. I'm not doing it now and then playing later. I don't like doing that. I'm just skipping it. And guess what? It's going to be totally fucking fine. No one's going to notice that my legs look any different. So anyway, whatever. I don't want to rant on it too much. You could do what you want. You could go for a walk. You could, I, I, as far as like steps per day, just shoot for an average across the week. 8,000 on average daily, some days higher, some days lower, just like your calories on average in a ballpark of active enough to maintain my weight or lose weight or whatever your goal is. So I really just wouldn't think about it this way. It's just one workout. It's not like, oh my God, I can't do my full workout. So now I have to meet some other really strict movement requirement. You don't like hit an amount of steps on average per week. You're going to do just fine. Don't worry about one workout.
Next question. Can cardio be overused in fat loss phases? How much is too much? Um, very simple answer. The answer is yes, it can be overused. What does overused look like? Overused looks like you doing an amount of cardio. So a duration, like an amount of minutes of cardio and at an intensity level that when you combine those two duration times intensity. So how much are you doing? How hard are you doing it? You feel super fatigued all the time, super tired, irritable, uh, signs of overreaching, not recovering, not sleeping well, always tired, always irritable, always hungry. And so there is no such thing from a metabolic perspective that you're overdoing cardio. But if I have a client who's like getting like 16,000 steps, but can never hit her calories because, or his calories, um, because she's always tired or he's always tired um, because of all this cardio, that's when it can be a downside. Like there's no such thing as I'm doing so much cardio that it's having a negative impact on the end result. It might have a negative impact on how you feel, which might have a negative impact on your overall ability to adhere to what you need to do in terms of maintaining a deficit. So there's no like, oh, I'm doing so much cardio that like now I'm not losing fat because of some weird metabolism thing. Like that's not really a thing. Yes, the more you do, the less you burn. Wow, that's a statement people will run with. Um, you just become more efficient. So going from 5,000 steps to 10,000 steps, Let's say it gives you an extra 400 calories. I made that up. So it's 5,000 steps, 400 calories. If you go from 10,000 to 15,000, you don't get 400 more calories. You get less than that. So becoming more efficient at what you're doing, you're burning a little bit less calories. So that's true, but still, technically speaking, just because there's a diminishing returns doesn't mean there becomes a point where it becomes a downside outside of the cardio makes you so tired that you can't do what you need to do. Do you have a time frame for adding hybrid programming? I answered that one. So definitely scroll back or listen back um, to my answer there. Personal opinion, better to load up one trip of groceries from your car for the gains or multiple trips for the steps. Oh, interesting. It's one trip and it's not even for the gains, it's for the ego, man. One trip for the ego. Like I ain't going back for two trips. Crazy. One trip, cutting off all the circulation in both my arms, um, 100% straining a trap um, for the ego, not the gains for the ego. But yeah, I'm a, definitely a one-trip person. Also, I live in an apartment complex. So the idea of going back out to my car, even if it's down the elevator, like the whole, the whole process just takes too much time. So it's one trip or bust for sure. Curious about how long it takes for noticeable results from taking creatine. That's funny. My answer is never. Like I would never expect noticeable results. And the funny thing is I am on team creatine. I think team creatine, I think creatine is like the safest, most well-studied and likely a, a supplement that we can be very sure does something. And that's not all supplements. A lot of people take supplements that doesn't even have, that don't have a lot of research that they do anything at all. Creatine does, it does something. Um, but it's not a game changer. It's not even remotely close to a game changer. Creatine is the kind of thing that you take every day of your life and you never think about. You trust that it's doing something in the background. It's like, a hey, how long after starting to take a multivitamin should I expect to feel better? Never. You, you know, if you take a multivitamin, you're taking it because you have some blind faith that it's doing something in the background. That's how you think about creatine. You take creatine, you know that it does work, doesn't have any downside, and you just take it every day and you don't ever think about it. So I would not expect that. Now, if you start taking creatine, you will get what's called fully saturated with creatine within about 28 days, so without, within a month. If you do a loading phase within about seven days, I don't recommend doing that. So 
after about 28 days of taking creatine, you can expect to feel and see all of the benefits that you would see and will see for the long term. And so that is to say not much because it doesn't really do a whole lot, but it does do something in a tiny amount. And so you kind of just take it, hope it, you know it works, but you certainly don't have any expectations in terms of being like, oh yeah, I just started taking creatine. I feel much stronger. That ain't going to happen for sure. What's the deal with lengthened partials versus one and a quarter reps? And so we are in the age of lengthened position work. I just did a Zoom with my group where we went over the basics of lengthened position, resistance profile, moment arms. It's like very simple stuff. I'm trying to identify where the length of position is, that sort of stuff. Essentially, training a muscle in a more lengthened position or challenging it in the lengthened portion of the rep, the lengthened portion of the exercise, both good for hypertrophy. Um, and you can do that in a multitude of ways. Sometimes you can't change the resistance profile of an exercise. I might lose some people here, but when you're doing, let's say, a lat pull down or upper back pull down, whatever, you're doing like a wide grip pull down, there's nothing you can do to that machine to make it harder in the length and position because you're dealing with the cable and the cable weighs the same throughout the whole length of the movement. In fact, technically speaking, cables are actually harder in a short position, whatever. So there's nothing I can do to the way I'm setting up the movement or the, the characteristics of the weight I'm moving to make it harder in a length of position. If I take that weight and I pull it down, it weighs the same at the bottom as it did at the top. Um, and so there's no real way for me to make that more challenging in the length of position. I would rephrase that to, to, to spend a higher percentage of my overall set working in a more lengthened position. So if I can't change the resistance profile, if I can't change where the exercise is hardest, if I'm doing a lap pull down, it's hardest at the bottom, no matter what. It's easier at the top, hardest at the bottom. I can't do anything to change that. But what I can do, if I wanna work and challenge and spend more time and get more tension in a lengthened position, I might pull down until the bar you know, is at my nose. Instead of tapping my chest, which would signify a more shortened position of the back musculature that I'm working, I might stop at the nose, which means I'm working the the more lengthened, maybe 70% of the exercise. And I might forego getting the full range of motion all the way down to the chest in lieu of a range of motion that is only the length of, only the 70% more lengthened position. And I, I only pull down to my nose every single rep. And so we have a lot of strategies for navigating. Like if I could make the lat pull down hardest at the top, easiest at the bottom, I wouldn't do length and partials. I wouldn't do uh, one and a quarter reps. I would just do the exercise. Um, there's an argument for still doing some lengthened only work, but I probably wouldn't for the most part because I know that the exercise is most challenging in the length of position. And that's probably good enough for me. But for exercises where that is impossible, where you can't change the resistance profile, I'll say for the thousandth time, we have strategies like only doing the length of position, length and partials, or like doing one and a quarter rep, where the first rep you pull down, you tap your chest. The second rep, you pull down to the nose. Then you pull down to the chest. Then you pull down to the nose. And alternating between those, if you were to like graph out where you spent more time in the lift, you spent more time in the length of position because every other rep you did a partial. And so there are these strategies, length and partials, one and a quarter reps, reverse drop sets, um, partial rep match, which is length and partials. Um, 
yeah, maybe some others, but those would be the main ones where we take an exercise where we can't change the resistance profile and we can spend more time in the length of position. And I also don't think any of these are all that amazing, by the way. I don't think you need to be, just a caveat, like I don't think you need to be doing this stuff to grow. Like it's fine and it has some physiological rationale, but length and partials, one and a quarter reps, none of this stuff is a game changer. Like it's something to add on to really good training that for me, the biggest benefit is variation. Kind of fun, changes it up. I think the, the actual muscle building benefits are, negligible to non-existent. You're never going to be like, wow, when I started doing like the partials, my lats blew up. It's like, no, that's not happening. Um, but like creatine, you have some faith in the research and you have some faith that this is marginally better and that if stacked up over the very, very long term, that maybe there's a benefit. But yeah, I don't think it matters a whole lot if we're being frank. When I say it, don't matter, it doesn't matter a lot, I mean, in compared to doing the other things, which is training hard enough, training often enough, consistently enough, sleeping enough, eating enough calories, eating enough protein, you know, using a full range of motion that exposes the muscle at all to a long length, proper programming. Um, I think those matter a whole lot more. Cool. How to maintain muscle once you reach your goal? Sheesh. Um, I'll, I, I always struggle with this one because I just think that if you were to lift with the intent of growing muscle, right? If you are new to training and you lift with the intent of growing muscle, if you're not watching on YouTube, you can't see what I'm doing with my hand, but you would see really big gains in the beginning, but it would level off over time. So even if you decide you don't want to get any bigger, you don't want to grow any more muscle, you can train with less sets. So you can train with less volume. You can do less sets and you can maintain. We know that the amount of sets that you need to do to grow is a lot more than the amount of sets you need to just maintain or rephrasing that you can do a lot less than what is required to grow if you just want to maintain. So the answer to your question is you can do less sets. But I don't know. I kind of feel like the, the rate of gains is asymptotic enough, which means like it, is diminishing enough. Even if you try, you know what you want to do? If you want to maintain muscle once you reach your goal, the biggest thing I would do is not go into a calorie surplus. Like I just, I'm sorry. I get, I get, I get a little worked up a smidge because I really think that you're not going to grow that much after many, many years without a surplus. If you've been training for five, six years and you think you're going to keep recomping Listen, you can still see gains at maintenance. You can, but you're not going to get that much bigger. This is a person asking how to maintain muscle once you reach your goal, seemingly because I, this person doesn't want to grow anymore. And I just think that the biggest thing that this person can do is not go into a surplus. Yeah, you can train a little bit less, 100%. You totally can. But I almost would, yeah, whatever. I don't, I don't, I don't need to go on a huge rant about this. If you don't want to grow, definitely don't go into a surplus. If you want to kind of test the waters with training less and see if you can still maintain, you can absolutely give that a shot. And, and I bet that you can train less. Trust me, I'm training four times a week, eight sets per workout, right? So four times a week, eight sets per workout. Actually, leg days are actually sometimes six sets, total, total sets, not exercises, sets. And I'm maintaining my muscle. And so I'm aware you can train a lot less and still maintain muscle. I'm aware. But... I've been doing this for a very long time. My training is very dialed in. I'm not saying you can't do this, but I am just saying, man, 
just don't go into a surplus and keep training really hard. And I, and I, and I bet that that leads to a positive outcome. Like, I know that you're like, I don't want to grow anymore. You can, yeah, you can train a little bit less, but I bet you, if you didn't change anything about your training at all, and you just didn't go into a surplus that you'd be really, really happy with those results as well. Cool. Step at steps, steps, colon, should I average over 8K per day for the week, but two out of the seven days are less. Sorry. So basically this person is asking, I average over 8K per day for the week, but two out of the seven days are less than 4,000. Should I try to adjust or it's okay? Very simple. It's totally okay. It is the exact same outcome as you getting 8,000 per day versus you getting 10,000, 6,000, 10,000, 6,000, 10,000, 6,000. It's the exact same thing. Average, when it comes to your movement and it comes to your calorie intake, when it comes to your calories out and it comes to your calories in, these things work on an average, whereas protein probably works more on a day-to-day basis. Just because the 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 time after eating protein where you're seeing the benefit is like every four to six hours. It's not like you can, whatever, we don't need to go into the protein. We didn't talk about that now. But there's a difference between eating 200 grams of protein and zero and 200 and zero and 200 zero versus 100, 100, 100, 100. Um, Whereas if you do that with calories where, you know, you're moving more 10,000 steps, 6,000 steps, 10,000, 6, 10, 6, that's the same as 88888. So averages when it comes to calories, averages when it comes to movement, for sure. Tips for leg day when heart rate is so elevate that it, elevated that it drains you. Um, my advice would be to try and identify the exercises where this happens and see if you can maybe lower the rep range a little bit. I doubt cardiovascular system is a big is a big player when you're doing six to eight reps of RDLs or six to eight reps of split squats or six to eight reps of back squats or six to eight reps of, you know, but I bet you if you're doing 12 to 15 set, 12 to 15 reps of lunges, 12 to 15 reps of squats, 12 to 15, 15 to 20 reps of RDLs, fuck man, cardiovascular system is going to be pumping. The second thing I would do, so I would identify the exercises where you're feeling cardiovascular system is jacked up and I would try lowering the rep range a little bit. Second is I would rest longer. Um, Rest longer. I don't care if you're in my group and I told you to rest three minutes. Uh, in my home gym, in 105 degree heat in Texas, I'm resting five minutes between like like uh, lat pull downs or something. Now you don't need to be me. You could say I'm being lazy or I'm or I'm stretching that unnecessarily. But rest longer. I don't want your cardiovascular system to be a limiting factor in your sets. Period. So choose exercises where that's less likely to happen. Then adopt a rep range where that's less likely to happen and then rest longer so you can actually give yourself a chance to recover. Last question, types of pull-up variations to include in a mesocycle to eventually progress to pull-ups. So the two biggest things you can do if you want to get better at pull-ups, there's three things you need to do. Number one is get a really fucking strong back. And I mean a really strong back. Don't even think about doing pull-ups. Just think about getting a really strong back. That means pulling on a wide range of angles, pulling from overhead, pulling from horizontal, pulling from somewhere in between and getting really fucking strong at all of them. People are like, I want to do pull-ups. I'm like, train your back like you're trying to get jacked for a year, then come back. You know, there are two other things I'm going to talk about, but getting a really strong back is sure as shit the number one thing you need to do. The second thing you need to do is acknowledge, I have my hands up here for those of you, acknowledge that it is a strength to weight ratio exercise. And so acknowledge that you're lifting your own body weight. So while you need to get stronger, what really matters is strong per body weight, per pound of body weight. And so if you're 200 pounds and you want to do your first chin up, yeah, you need a really strong back, but a pull up at 200 pounds is much harder than a pull up at 160 pounds, for example. 
Um, when I'm in a gaining phase, I haven't in a very long time, but the last time I was in a gaining phase, I put pull-ups in my program. And my progressive overload was just gaining body weight. Like I gained like 30 pounds over the course of 18 months, right? Very nice, not not super fast, and you know, a pound and a half a month-ish. Um, and all I did was kept doing pull-ups and I, my reps didn't go up by very much because my body weight is going up. And that was my form of progressive overload. So you have to acknowledge that it's a strength to weight ratio exercise. And the third thing, like you are asking, is having, is acknowledging that a pull-up is also a skill. And what I mean by that is that, at some point doing pull-ups specifically will help with some of the core development that sometimes is required, but also just the skill of doing the exercise. Like if you want to get better at doing something, then you should probably do variations of that thing. So we need general back strength. We need an acknowledgement of strength to weight ratio, and we need some form of specific pull up, pulling up in your programs. So you said what pull-up variations? My favorite are eccentric only pull-ups, um, isometric holds, and... Um, and and assisted pull-ups. Um, assisted has a wide range of options. You can use a band assisted, which is the worst of these three options, but still totally fine. If that's all you got, totally fine. The problem with the band is it makes the exercise easiest at the bottom. And quite often that's where people feel the weakest. And so it flips the resistance profile on its head. You would kind of want it to be the opposite where it's, easy, where, where it's harder at the bottom and easier as you get to the top. That more reflects um, where, you know, what we would call the strength curve, where you are strong and you are weak. Um, so the band does a bad job at that, but the band does get you into the pull-up position, actually have you doing legit pull-ups. The second would be a um, leg-assisted pull-up. So I have that on my YouTube. If you want to go check it out, just type Jordan Lips leg-assisted pull-up. Um, essentially, you're starting to pull up with your hands up on the bar, but your feet are on the floor. And so the bar is set up maybe at like chest height. And as you're pulling yourself up, you're pushing your feet down into the ground to help you up. And so it really allows you to give yourself help at the certain parts of the rep where you need help. Whereas the band, your only option is to make it easier at the bottom. And the third would be an assisted pull-up machine at your gym. The assisted pull-up machine is an amazing machine. It is the best thing you can do if you want to get better at pull-ups. Also, even if you can do pull-ups, if your goal is hypertrophy, it's an, like I can do pull-ups. But sometimes if I want to work in a higher rep range or I just want the added stability of the machine, I love the assisted chin-up machine. And I people get really like, I'm going to use the word egotistical. They get really like obsessed with being able to do chin-ups. And they think that doing the assisted machine, once they can do three chin-ups is a faux pas. It's not good. Don't do it. You don't need it. It's it's for wussies. Fuck that, dude. I use the chin. I can do 15, 20 pull-ups, whatever. 10, 15, 20 pull-ups, depending on the what, what kind of grip, whatever. Um, I love the assisted machine. It adds an element of stability, which is incredibly helpful. And so even if you can do some chin-ups, don't get egotistical about it. You're probably getting a better back stimulus in the assisted chin-up machine. Yeah, doing chin-ups can be cool, but if your goal is hypertrophy, I know I pivoted here. If the goal is hypertrophy, the added stability of the machine is better. So even if you can do five, five pull-ups, you know, sometimes that fourth and fifth one, it's kind of grindy and your legs come forward. You're using a ton of core, a ton of bicep. But if you go into the assisted machine, every rep is super crisp, not limited by your core development, your core engagement. Um, and really crisp, really stable. You can get better technique. You can get closer to failure in the muscles that you want. So that's my shtick on the pull-up machine. All right, amazing. All the questions are done. Thank you guys for asking. And I will see you in the next one. I'll see you from North Carolina next week. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. 
If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.